Hey everyone, welcome back. I am of course Antje Boyd, founder and creator of the Magnetize Your Man Method. And today I have a juicy surprise for you. I have the attachment coach, Tice Gibson, here with me today. Hey, Tice. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I love it. You're such a plethora of wisdom. I can't wait to like dive right in because we will be talking about attachment styles, ladies. I know like my women always say in the polls, like, I want to learn more about attachment styles. You know, what do you want to learn more about? So this is like one of the most high ranking topics of requests that I get on a regular basis. So I'm super excited to have a different expert, a different opinion, different perspective here with me today and different stories. So welcome, Thais. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so we'd love to hear from you since, uh, since some women may know you from YouTube, some don't. Um, tell us a little bit more about your story. Why attachment, right? You could be, you know, an expert in so many different things, which you, by the way, also are. But I feel like to me, the attachment videos are really speaking. Thank you. Yeah. So, so a big part of like how I sort of got into this was through my personal journey. Definitely went through like a lot of attachment related trauma in childhood, which then I think took me to like sort of an unprocessed place where I kind of struggled with addiction, got addicted to painkillers after a knee surgery at 14, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of my healing was to do with like uncovering exactly what was stored within me at a subconscious level related to attachment trauma. And when I could understand some of these really painful beliefs and unmet needs and, and sort of fears that I was carrying because of my past experiences that largely sort of related to that context, that was a really profound way um, for me to, to start my healing journey. So that was one of many things, honestly, there wasn't just that, but it definitely played a huge crucial role and, and so very grateful for it. And then of course, sort of my natural state is like what I learn and what works for me. I then just want to share with people like, Hey, listen, <laughs> this can help for you too. So, um, so it sort of brought me down that rabbit hole and, and it feels nice and easy and, and like in my nature to want to put content together on YouTube and share this stuff. Yeah. And I just found uh, out when we were talking, right. We have that like in common that we're both in our teenagerhood really had to go more down the rabbit hole. Like for me it was more because I had the most severe acne on this planet where nobody could identify me, but also diving deeper, looking at um, this whole unconscious, subconscious programming, right? Um, but what I find interesting, what you just mentioned, is this whole connection with the attachment, because I didn't learn about it until I was at UC Berkeley. So I'm curious to hear a little bit from you how you already saw it um, in that moment, that when you had the knee surgery, when you were taking the painkillers, how was that connected to attachment, <laughs> Yeah. So, so it's funny. Cause I remember too, like they, like, I remember I did my undergrad in psychology as well. And, and, um, they teach about attachment theory, but I, they didn't talk a lot about it in the context of like adult romantic relationships and your patterns and your lifestyle and all these different things. And I remember like reading about it, honestly, in, in school during my undergrad program and being like, Mm, this is interesting, but not that interesting. And it wasn't until later that it kind of came full circle. I think as we do some of our own independent research and start to see the patterns and all these different things. And I did like a program in it at some point later on, but, um, but what I really found is that a lot of the, okay. So I would say when I had to figure out why am I addicted to painkillers? Like what is going on? One of the first things that happened is somebody said to me, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And I had just been on, when I heard that information, I was like a high functional addict. I was um, high functioning. I was in 
my undergrad program in psychology. I was thinking about dropping out because I was like, I can't handle life anymore. Like I was really struggling. And he said this to me, this student in one of my classes, it wasn't even a teacher. And I was like, oh my gosh, you just described this like battle I'm living every day because every single day for the better part of up until that point, it had been about six years. I was going, oh, you know, I'm going to stop. This is the last time. I'm not going to do this again. I'm, I'm going to avoid the girl who sells them to me. I'm going to do this. And when I would write out all these things I was going to do, and then I would lose that battle every single day and I would go back and then do them again and, and keep repeating the cycle. And it's a very like defeating thing to go through, to keep telling yourself, I'm going to stop something. And then every day you keep repeating it. And you just feel like you're like in this battle with yourself. So when he said to me, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind, I was like, oh my God, you just described like what's happening to me every day. Like finally, and I had done, I had been in rehab already in the summer. I had um, done AA programs, NA programs, like all these different things and nothing was working. And it was like, oh, you just described this thing to me and everything finally made sense. And so then I was like, I need to do whatever I can in the whole world to understand my subconscious. And then what I realized is like, okay, well, it's not just your subconscious mind. It's like what you're carrying at a subconscious level. And it was like, okay, so why am I trying to take painkillers all the time? Well, I'm trying to numb emotional pain that exists in that subconscious landscape from past experiences. And then I really had to dive into what those experiences were. And a lot of them existed in my household with my family, specifically with my parents more than anyone else. And then it was like, okay, this is about that, the way I learned to relate the subconscious set of rules I learned because of the things I saw, the things I went through, the things that took place in my home. And then being able to unpack that had a really profound link between our subconscious mind and attachment trauma. And so that's why it was like so powerful for me. Mm, Yeah, totally. Like I see that linkage there. And so since we talk about attachment styles today, uh, tell us a little bit more about, so what, what attachment styles did you start out with? Where was like the biggest emphasis for you personally? I was a super fearful avoidant. Um, so, so if people are familiar, like obviously we have our anxious, it's sort of one end of the continuum and they have a lot of the, I will be abandoned, alone, excluded, disliked, rejected, not good enough kind of core wounds, a lot related to like trying to hold on to people and relationships. And then we have our dismissive avoidant who are like, I need to keep people away to stay safe. And they have a lot of, I am unsafe, trapped, helpless, powerless. Um, I am defective is a big core wound. They carry a lot of subconscious shame and then fearful avoidance is the third insecure attachment style sort of have both sides of the attachment spectrum. So they can sort of oscillate back and forth from one end to the other. Then of course we have our securely attached person, which is what we're trying to all get to. Um, but I was the like classic fearful avoidant. I would be very anxious. And then if people got too close, I'd become very avoidant and needed everybody to stay away. And um, I was swinging. I remember thinking as, as a teenager, like, how do people feel calm in relationships? Like relationships are the most difficult thing. Like this is just so hard and so time consuming, but it's because I never felt, you know, and I think that's a very like fearful avoiding experience is you don't feel settled in because you're either on your anxious side, triggered over here in activating mode, or you're on your avoidance side over here, triggered and like everybody get back mode. Mm-hmm. And there's not this like sense of peace in being like rooted in your center. Um, so that's a, a, an exhausting experience as that person. And I'm sure lots of different people can kind of relate to that. Yeah, totally. It's sort of this whole sense of well-being, right? It's not there. And I always feel like there's sort of like this faster energy aggravation, right? That, I need to figure something out. I need to send something. And it's like this really nervous, like almost like a neurosis 
um, that can that can occur from that place, right? Because it's also you swing so much. So there's like a little to no self-trust, really, because how can you trust yourself if you're like, well, I was avoiding here, but now I'm like totally anxious here. And now I'm right. 100%. And I think another thing that you just hit the nail on the head about, which is so important is that whenever we have a trauma from childhood and part of how the subconscious works is we accidentally have a really high chance of reenacting that trauma in the relationship to ourselves. And so when we have something that's not met or we have a painful story that develops, you know, often let's pretend, for example, that that somebody is very critical in our childhood. And maybe we make that mean, oh, we're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if somebody's, let's say, in their 40s and they had this critical parent up until the age of eight, mm-hmm. you know, why are you still affected, you know, 32 years later by something that happened at eight years old? Well, because for that neural set of pathways to stay alive, we had to be firing and wiring them over and over again on autopilot. So AKA we're in a state of re-traumatization. We had to keep telling ourselves in the relationship to ourselves that we're not good enough. And we, in fact, are the ones that accidentally kept that wound alive. And so when you say that about trust, one of the biggest core wounds of the fearful avoidant is is not being able to trust others and feeling so sensitive to betrayal. And if we look, fearful ones are also the number one attachment style that will betray themselves. And they will betray because they will feel like they have to people please to stay safe. They will betray because they feel like they have to forego their boundaries to try to take care of everybody else. And so a lot of these patterns are like, if you're your own greatest self-betrayer, of course, that becomes a big wound as well. And we're, we're in a state of re-traumatization. And so realizing that and recognizing that that trigger that we have from other people is actually part of the shadow self um, is a really pivotal part of the fearful avoidance healing journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always call it, it's sort of like this pendulum swing, right? Like this is like such a good description for the fearful avoidant. Um, and I think the biggest piece also is like that what I tell women all the time is that when they end up in a relationship where they have cheaters all the time or the betrayal happens or whatever happens, I always say, well, when did you start betraying yourself? Yeah, exactly. For the first time. So that feeds right into what you were mentioning, right? So I want to go just like slightly because, you know, most women that think more like secure, anxious, avoidant, right? So a lot of them don't know that there's actually like a distinction between a fearful avoidant and the dismissive avoidant. So, I mean, I know, of course, more about it, but I'd love to hear, of course, more about, um, like to bring more some examples so that I didn't really say, oh, am I more like the dismissive or am I more the fearful because maybe that thought they're anxious, but now they're thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm actually fearful avoidant. Like, so how do I, how do I know who I am? Great question. So, so the dismissive avoidant on that, like one polarity end, and I, I, I can give this in the context of if we're trying to sort of recognize ourselves or someone else is a dismissive avoidant from the very beginning, they can be very intellectually available, but they won't be very emotionally available. And they'll have that sort of wall up because some of the earliest programs for the dismissive avoidant, if you can imagine a child growing up in like an emotionally neglectful sort of space with their family, well, basically all of the programs of conscious associations you get, if you're the dismissive avoidant in a, in a neglecting home are well, nothing feels good about emotionally connecting to people. I always feel rejected. And in fact, a child who's inherently and biologically wired for emotional connection and attunement, if that's missing, a child doesn't have the prefrontal cortex development yet to look at their parents and go, oh, mom and dad are emotionally unavailable. A child goes, there must be something wrong with me. 
I must be defective. And so this deep, profound shame develops. And when we feel shame and we all tune into anytime we feel shame, what is the first thing we want to do? We want to run and hide. Shame makes us want to hide. And so if you imagine somebody's carrying these deep programs that really are a functionality of how they perceive and interact with the world, the, the two programs for the dismissive that are really there are I don't want to be seen because I'm shameful at my core. And when people see me, they'll know that I'm just a shameful person. I'm defective in some way. And emotional closeness is very unsafe. It does not make me feel good. And now you can think of the subconscious mind as being like the filter that you perceive the world through. We're all experiencing, even though you and I could sit in the same objective reality, we all experience our subjective interpretation. And what that's based off of is all the subconscious imprints that we had. And largely the vast majority of the ones that impact us the most come from early childhood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we go through life and if these are your programs, you're interacting with the world through, those are some big things we'll see about dismissives. They feel unsafe to connect. They want to keep people at a distance. They don't want to let people in too emotionally. They don't want people to see them too deeply. They don't want to be too vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So that's like what you'll really see there versus the fearful avoidant they have this huge capacity to be super emotionally available. Usually the fearful avoidant grew up in a childhood where there was a lot of chaos. And sometimes the fearful avoidance referred to as the disorganized attachment style as well, or anxious avoidant. And those are two really good names because, you know, one of the big profound things about the fearful avoidant is they have no attachment strategy. So the anxious learns I can soothe through others. And if others pull away, I panic and try to find ways to soothe through others again, because they have more positive emotional associations to soothing through others. The dismissive avoidance is I can't soothe through others. I'm going to soothe through myself because I, you know, I get rejected consistently, but at least there's a consistency. At least it's like, I know what's going on. The fearful avoidant usually grows up in a home where there's fractured consistency. So it could be, for example, things like mom or dad being a drug addict or an alcoholic. So some days mom comes home and she's sober and she's very loving. Sometimes mom comes home and she's drinking and she's extra loving. Sometimes mom comes home and she's drinking and she's mean and scary and angry. And there's just absolutely no predictability. And so it can be violence in the home, lots of fighting between parents, physical, verbal abuse that are consistent, a lot of lying, parental alienation where one parent pushes the kid against the other parent and vice versa, sort of like moves them back and forth like a pawn, alcoholism, all these different things. And so basically in any form, the child learns, I love love, I love closeness, I want it, but it terrifies me at the same time and there's no way of predicting it. And so this person grows up and they learn usually to have to caretake for others to stay safe. Like, oh, if I can caretake mom, if she's drinking or dad, if he's drugging or my parents, when they're fighting, if I can caretake, I stay safe. So they become the ultimate caretakers. But as a byproduct of that, they learn to totally abandon their own needs and their own sense of boundaries to stay safe in the world. And so the fearful avoidance have this really unique characteristic of being very emotionally available, very attuned to other people, very able to read micro expressions, body language, hypervigilance becomes part of their way of trying to feel that they can attach and understand what's going on. And then at the same time, they become totally abandoning of themselves. And usually what happens is then they go, oh my gosh, eventually they hit their boiling point and they have to push people away or stay back to try to like regulate when no one externally is doing that for them. So, so fearful ones you'll see are very emotionally available, very differently than dismissives, but that emotional availability is still like a pendulum. They can go from very available to very unavailable and it can be in like these hot and cold extremes. Um, and fearful avoidance are usually very poor with their boundaries on 
until they get really angry. And then their boundaries are like a volcano erupting. <laughs> and, and dismissive avoidance are usually pretty good with their boundaries out of the gates. Mm-hmm. Um, and fearful avoidance as well tend to be very attuned to human behavior and micro expressions and people. Cause that was try to how they tried to figure out their childhood. Like I have to read between the lines all the time. Dismissive avoidance are usually much more attuned to themselves, their own needs, what's going on internally, their own space. So they're more internally focused, whereas FAs are more externally focused. And those are some of the really key differences that you'll be able to tell right away, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And uh, so like I'm in FA too, right? Like I had a narcissistic uh, and borderline personality mom. Right. So what's exactly true, right? Like I got sent to my room. So I was crying because we just had an argument and she was like sitting in the living room, laughing her head off, like at her favorite movie, right? Like a mom who's like, your child is crying in the room right now. Right. But you're just like having a little piccolo and, uh, and my parents were fighting every day. Right. So my system was like, I, I don't know what's what. And then on top of that, I would love to talk about it a little bit, Thais, because uh, what I see with the women that come to me, right. It's sort of like this Oh, I got it. I got it. Right. Even though you didn't get it at all. Like it's, it's so disorienting. The whole system is completely thrown off, like completely confused all the time. And it's always some sort of collapse happening, but on the outside, it's like CEOs and they run their own companies and have all the answers. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about that, like how that occurs, that there's actually the internal collapse, but on the outside, it's just like, look at me. You know what I mean? Like I, I know everything. I control everything. I manage everything. That kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. So you, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of women who are fearful avoidance, um, are very successful. Um, and why do you think this is? Well, if we have these subconscious programs that say I am naturally unsafe in the world and I can't trust people and I can't rely on other people, what this is likely to create is women, if they can, you know, be okay enough, you usually had to grow up really fast because you were exposed to things that you weren't able to process at the time, which means you have a subconscious comfort zone that's actually being out of your comfort zone. Does that make sense? It's like you have this like natural space that you feel comfortable in of pushing yourself, of going outside of the box of doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. You usually had to learn to be very resourceful because welcome to, you know, crazy childhood. You better figure out how to be resourceful quickly. And then if we naturally feel unsafe in the world and that we can't rely on other people, you can bet that we, there's a pretty high chance we're going to try to carve out a space for ourselves to be hyper okay to rely on ourselves by being financially empowered, career empowered, things that are going to help us feel safer in the world. Yeah. And so there are a very large amount of females Um, and males who are fearful avoidant, who become very career focused, really dive into that area. Now, that can be a really beautiful thing. And of course, it has many benefits, but it becomes, you know, there there can be detriments to it when we're doing that out of safety, when we're, when that's motivated so much by fear, if we can find, okay, you know, it's motivated by truth and we can feel okay with things not going right. And if we can do that subconscious reprogramming and healing, so we're not becoming dependent on our external life circumstances to try to create some internal results, then, then that's a really good thing. But if we're using it and becoming reliant in that way, you can bet at some point life's not going to go perfectly outside. And what fearful avoidance can sometimes fall into the trap of is when that happens, if they haven't done that emotional inner regulation and reprogramming work, then as soon as life feels unsafe outside, it becomes so traumatizing and triggering because it reignites all these subconscious core wounds that then we're actually likely to go into like saboteur mode because we can actually deactivate in our careers and in other parts 
parts of our lives too. So we have that really strong flight response tripped or fight back response tripped. And all of a sudden here we are like overly aggressive in the workplace or fleeing the scene and uprooting our lives and moving and starting over too quickly and prematurely. And so sometimes those, those responses can still show show up in all these different ways. Um, So you really hit the nail on the head that a lot of FA women do tend to be quite successful for those reasons. A lot of their programming sort of puts them on that path, but there's that really important inner work to do still so that it doesn't become something where the career is like up and then down and then up and then down. And we want to get off the roller coaster internally so that our external life can reflect that as well. Mm, yeah, totally, totally. And so tell us like a story that uh, of a woman as you're coming like t- almost to an end here. I know I could talk to you forever, but I'd love to hear like a success story that you had with a woman who was an FA because most women that come to me here, they are definitely more um, fearful avoidance, very, very successful, but fearful avoidance. So do you have like a story that you can share with us, like where you, yeah, just really helped that particular woman to turn it around for herself and find her secure, you know, hold some place inside of herself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first person that comes to mind, just because of how recent it is and and how beautiful the, the story was, is she just recently posted, she's one of our group members, and she just posted this um, picture a, a couple of days ago of her and now her husband who just got married. Um, and they came in and they, they joined the school and she, her story, I knew her a little bit personally first, her story was that, um, she had a very, very narcissistic, uh, mother. And then she grew up and went into a really abusive relationship, um, who she got married to this man. He was physically abusive, all these different things, really painful. She left that kind of in the state of trauma. And that was what kind of led her to feel like, okay, I'm going to learn about attachment styles and what's going on inside of me that I basically went from my mom to the exact same version of my mom in a male, except a little scarier. And so she did a lot of the attachment reprogramming. She worked really hard, um, a lot of reprogramming on the core wounds, learning to express her needs, stand up for her boundaries, show up in the relationship to herself. A big thing I always say to people who are FA and wanting to heal is like, you have to learn to take yourself into consideration. So when we make a commitment to something, don't just say yes, because your like safety impulse is to just say yes and deal with everything else you know, take, check in, where am I at with my time, with my emotional energy, with my current bandwidth? Like, what can I say yes to and no to? And that was a really big part of her healing in, in this new relationship she got into. Um, and so she did the work on all those different areas and then recently just got married. Um, and she just found out not soon, not a little bit before the wedding actually happened, but obviously after the engagement, um, that she's pregnant. So she has a a baby on the way and, um, she was posting this really beautiful story about it in the, um, in the group the other day. And it was really beautiful and inspiring to see. And that's actually a big deal when a mom heals her own attachment wounds that, that the baby, you know, like it's, it's incredible. The, the neuronal co-regulation that now is possible so much more powerfully because the mom's actually, you know what I mean? Like at her center, I mean, it's so incredible. Absolutely. And when we talk about epigenetics, right, it's like the research shows now that like often four generations down, we're carrying cellular memory around trauma. And so, you know, it's beautiful. I love that you said that because it's like, you know, hopefully she ended that generational trauma and that's the end. And I'm sure, you know, we're not supposed to get to a point where we're secure and then we're perfect and we never make a parenting mistake. And so I don't want to give the message that that's how parents should be because it's not true. But, but, you know, to know that that you put an end to so much of your own internal pain was going to play a major role on the way that a child is parented as well. 
Oh, so huge. So yeah, like I said, I could talk to you forever, Thais. So for the women who are like, gosh, I could really uh, listen to Thais forever. Do you have like something uh, that you have to offer for them? Um, yeah, so we have a, I have a, a YouTube channel. It's personal development school dash Thais Gibson. Um, and on there, we put daily YouTube content. And then we have the personal development school with about 40 courses in there now um, on all this stuff. And then some, and I do four live webinars a week. And we have attachment coaches in there who have little social mastermind groups and events with our, our students as well. So it's a nice little connected place. And that's at www.personaldevelopmentschool.com. Um, and we have a code as well that we, I guess, can put in the show notes. If that yeah, works. we put that all in the notes. Amazing. Absolutely. Well, Thais, this was so inspiring. I always love to talk attachment styles and to hear like different stories and a different get, get it put in a different perspective and come from a different context. And, you know, it's like so in, uh, important for us to assimilate it on many different levels. You know, when so many people say the same thing and then one other person says and it finally goes in, right? So that's what I felt like. And that's what really happened here today. So thank you so much for being here today, Chais. And I'm definitely looking forward to having you back on. Thank you so much for having me. And you're so much fun to chat with. And, and we share some big similarities. And so I just love chatting with you and being with you today. Totally, totally. Well, all my love to you. Take care, ladies. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.